You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 12th day of September 2010. I'd like to take a moment to welcome all of the listeners back to The Corbett Report and invite them all, as always, to check into my websites, CorbettReport.com, NewWorldNextWeek.com, ClimateGate.tv, ReportageBook.com, and AlQaedaDoesn'tExist.com as well as all of those websites that help to collect, podcast, distribute, syndicate, and otherwise get out the word about the Corbett Report and our works, including RadioForAll.net, CascadiaPublicRadio.org, MediaMonarchy.com, AltBib.com, and ZeroPointRadio.com. And this week I'd also like to thank Lieutenant Eric Schein of RepublicBroadcasting.org for having me on his RBN radio program In the Zone yesterday, Saturday, September 11th, 2010 at 11 p.m. Central. And for those of you who missed that appearance and would like to catch it, you can always go to the Republic Broadcasting archives and it's $1.33 per month and you can download the archived edition of that program. Also this week, I'd like to thank those viewers and listeners who have taken their time to send in their ideas for episode 150 of The Corbett Report. As I announced last week on the beginning of the podcast, I said that on October 3rd, I plan to release episode 150, and it will be another viewer and listener participation episode. So for all those people who want to submit an idea for how to defeat the New World Order, whether a small idea or a large idea... Uh, by all means, send it in either through the contact form on CorbettReport.com or by leaving a voicemail on our voicemail hotline, 512-553-0297. That's 512-553-0297. Again, that's a local Austin, Texas uh, area code number that connects to my Skype account. And there you can leave a voicemail. And I will, again, do my best to play all of the feedback that I get on episode 150. But again, I can't guarantee, depending on how much feedback we end up getting. So once again, how to defeat the New World Order, please send it in either by email or voicemail. And we have a lot of information to cover today, so let's get straight into it. Let's get to today's Sunday update. Hello, this is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com with your Sunday update for this 12th day of September, 2010. And now for the real news. The Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals tossed out a lawsuit against a Boeing subsidiary accused of helping to transport CIA torture detainees this week, citing the Obama Justice Department's argument that the case could imperil national security. The Obama argument relies on the state secret privilege, a 1953 Supreme Court ruling allowing judges to dismiss national security cases. The state secret privilege was rarely used until the Bush administration used it to gag FBI whistleblower Sibel Edmonds. Since then, the Obama administration has gone on to argue for the state secret privilege even more often and more strenuously than Bush. After eight years of Bush secrecy and an estimated 20-plus court claims of state secrets privilege with which to hide facts from the American people tonight, the new attorney general says he has been reviewing those claims and after looking at a couple expects to reverse one of them. Is that just one or one already? 
Our fourth story tonight, a follow-up to last night's report on Obama's defense and expansion of the Bush doctrine of presidential supremacy over courts and the people when it comes to issues of or allegedly of national security. The current issue, the case of Jewel v. the National Security Agency, former President Bush, former Attorney General Gonzalez, other officers of the Bush administration, for the illegal wiretapping as discussed on this news hour by whistleblower Mark Klein of Americans for the government by AT&T using secret facilities at its Folsom Street San Francisco location and others. As we said last night, the the Obama administration taking its first crack at the case Friday night not only defended the Bush claim of state secrets, seeking to dismiss the case entirely, but added a stunning claim that no one can ever sue the U.S. government over secret wiretaps, even if the wiretaps are illegal. The Attorney General, Mr. Holder, telling CBS News tonight he is, quote, likely to reverse one unspecified Bush claim of state secrets, but that in the other three claims they have reviewed so far, Mr. Bush was correct. The latest invocation of state secret privilege to throw out a case related to the illegal CIA torture program comes as no surprise to long-term critics of the Obama administration. In fact, the Obama administration has come repeatedly under attack by its most ardent supporters for repeatedly going even further than the Bush administration in destroying what remains of Americans' constitutional rights. Obama has come under swift fire for the administration's stance on pre-crime and prolonged detentions. President Obama today proposed something new, something called prolonged detention. Doesn't sound that bad, right? Prolonged detention? Did you ever see the movie Minority Report? It was based on a Philip K. Dick short story. It came out in 2002. It starred Tom Cruise, remember? He played a police officer in something called the Department of Pre-Crime. Pre-Crime is where people are arrested and incarcerated to prevent crimes that they have not yet committed. Mr. Marks, my mandate at the District of Columbia Pre-Crime Division. I'm placing you under arrest for the future murder of Sarah Marks and Donald Dubinow's take place today, April 22nd, at 0800 hours, four minutes. No, I didn't do anything. You didn't do anything, but you're gonna. Future murder. Creepy, right? Putting somebody in jail, not for what they've done, but for what you're very sure they're going to do? There may be a number of people who cannot be prosecuted for past crimes. In some cases, because evidence may be tainted, but who nonetheless pose a threat to the security of the United States. We're not prosecuting them for past crimes, but we need to keep them in prison because of our expectation of their future crimes. Obama's foreign policy has been compared unfavorably to Bush's, and on the domestic front, civil libertarians are disgusted at the continuation of the Patriot Act. When the American people elected President Obama, the country was promised change. Yet there is very little difference between President Obama and President Bush. Take a listen. Then-Senator Obama and practically every single Democrat relentlessly criticized President Bush and his administration for engaging in an illegal... Now fast forward to today and ask yourself, how has the U.S. foreign policy changed? The truth is, it hasn't. We are still entrenched in Iraq. We are fighting two other non-declared wars in Afghanistan and in Pakistan. There is a frightening level, level of saber-rattling between this administration, the Obama administration, and the government of Iran. They are actively pursuing al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula and in Yemen. And President Obama, of all things, has extended the Patriot Act, allowing the U.S. government to continue to spy on us and allowing its agents to write their own search warrants and direct violation of the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. There has been no change. Obama has been called out on Bagram, a.k.a. Obama's Guantanamo. As a parent... I can also imagine the terror I'd feel if one of my family members were rounded up in the middle of the night and sent to Guantanamo Bay without even getting one chance to ask why we were being held and being able to prove my innocence. That was then-Senator Barack Obama in 2006 speaking against the Military Commission Act, which denied habeas corpus to de detainees at Guantanamo. The Supreme Court eventually ruled in 2008 that Guantanamo detainees did have a right to habeas. They could challenge their imprisonment in federal court. 
After that ruling, the Bush administration decided that instead of bringing detainees to Guantanamo, they'd take them somewhere else, another location outside the jurisdiction of a court. Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. Detainees found themselves in the same legal black hole, but a different location. Today, there are between six to 800, quote, unlawful enemy combatants held indefinitely at Bagram, and President Obama is in favor of it. President Obama is on the exact opposite side of the argument that Senator Obama was in 2006. The Obama administration has continued the Bush policy. When three detainees currently imprisoned in Bagram challenged their status, the administration argued against them. The White House lost that argument in front of a conservative judge who ruled the detainees did in fact have a right to habeas. So the Obama administration appealed that decision. And today, President Obama scored a victory to keep those detainees locked up indefinitely without even getting one chance to prove their innocence in court. Within days of taking office, Obama was called out for breaking promises about lobbyists in his administration. We are cutting through the bull tonight, and I want you to hear something uh, Barack Obama said just about a year ago. I'm in this race to take, tell the lobbyists in Washington that their days of setting the agenda are over. They, they have not funded my campaign. They will not work in my White House. Just this weekend, the New York Times published a list of names, a rather long list of names, of people who are working on Obama's transition team or who have accepted jobs in his White House who are either former lobbyists or who have close ties to lobbyists. Since then, he has appointed lobbyists to dozens of top positions in his, in his administration. Yet despite all of these broken promises and outright lies, Obama supporters still say that Obama is somehow different than and somehow better than Bush. What is never mentioned is that neither Bush nor Obama run anything whatsoever and are mere puppet figureheads for the ruling elite who own the privately owned central banks that print the money out of nothing and then lend that funny money to the government at interest. On a related note, the government has also won a decision by the Third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals that upholds the government's right to obtain personal information on you without a warrant from your cell phone company. In a decision that has left many attorneys perplexed, the court argued that such an action, a direct violation of Fourth Amendment freedom from warrantless searches, does not violate the Fourth Amendment. The DOJ defends warrantless device tracking in a novel piracy case the Obama administration has told an appeals court that the police should be able to learn the locations of mobile devices without a search warrant. There's no constitutional bar to acquiring routine business records held by a communication service provider, they say. There's a scene at story. What's this all about? Yeah, so essentially they want to make it easy to track down anybody they want without having to go through the courts, which, yeah, great for search and rescue, right? You're looking for somebody who's lost in the wilderness, but that's not what this is for. You're looking for somebody who's lost in the wilderness, you have to go get a damn search warrant, and it takes forever, and you risk their lives. With this, the government says, oh, but when we're interested, we want to be able to skip the warrant and just look at, uh, look at the GPS information. It's, it's all cattywampus. It's back. Yeah, this is a this is a really important issue because if the Obama administration gets what they want, we all we all have little beacon devices sitting in our pockets that the government can tap. They don't have to get a warrant. They don't. They, they can. The Fourth Amendment is irrelevant. They can they can track where you were on a given date without ever having to prove to a court of law that I'm suspected of of doing some kind of wrongdoing. And this is a really The appeals court upholding of the government right to access your cell phone records without a warrant comes on the heel of a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals decision that says that it is perfectly okay for agents of the state to sneak onto your driveway in the middle of the night, plant a GPS device on your vehicle, and track your every movement. As we turn now to our next story, a federal court in California has issued a ruling that's raising widespread alarm among advocates for civil liberties. Earlier this month, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit said law enforcement agents can sneak onto a person's property, plant a GPS device on their vehicle, and track their every movements. The ruling came in the case of Juan Pineda Moreno, an Oregon resident who was suspected of growing marijuana. In 2007, drug enforcement agents snuck onto Pineda Moreno's property in the middle of the night and planted a GPS device on the bottom of his Jeep. 
Pineda Moreno ended up pleading guilty to the marijuana charges, but has challenged the government's evidence obtained through GPS. But the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals has now twice rejected his case. In a dissent, Chief Judge Alex Kaczynski accused the majority of, quote, cultural elitism for issuing a ruling he said would only affect lower-income Americans. Kaczynski says anyone who can afford to surround their home with security gates, fences, and booths would effectively be exempt. The court's ruling means the spying is legal in California and eight other western states. No word yet on why the docile American population has not risen up en masse over these flagrant violations of constitutional principles with a declaration saying, quote, as established in 1776, our fundamental human rights are inviolable, inalienable, and unassailable, and have never been granted by any government or judge, and thus can never be taken by any politician or judge under any pretense whatsoever." End quote. Finally this week, some 9-11 truth activists were able to insert the only sane message all weekend in the midst of an otherwise ridiculous and distractionary fight over mosques and Korans. A lot of times we were asked, uh, what would it take to, to call this thing off? We have thought it over many times. Uh, we felt very um, convinced that we should do this. Uh, we thought about what, what would have to happen for us to call our event off. As we prayed about that, in the past we did have one idea. Did this idea we put out in prayer to God that, that, that if he would want us to call this off, if we have accomplished our goal, hey, 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 hey. then our thought was... Now stay tuned to CorbettReport.com for episode 145 of the Corbett Report podcast, You Are Being Gamed, where we examine the virtual Skinner boxes that are being created to condition your behaviors for every aspect of your life. <laughs> what is this? It's a game. Everyone here is playing it. It's fun. I keep my eyes open or closed. Open. What am I seeing? The playing field. Now what? <laughs> you see the disc in the car? Yeah. Concentrate. Make the disc go into the car. I don't do that. How does this game go? <laughs> as far as you can take it. Would you like to go for level two? <laughs> and little did Commander Riker know that he was setting the crew of the Enterprise up for another wacky adventure. Well, welcome to episode 145 of The Corbett Report. You are being gamed. And for those of you in the audience who may not be Trekkies or may not have gotten the reference in today's clip, basically it was about a mind-controlling, addictive game that got the crew of the Enterprise in trouble if it weren't for that boy wonder, Wes Crusher. But suffice it to say, we will be drawing on some of the themes that we've covered in previous episodes of this podcast, including the episode on mind control and the episode on transhumanism. But we're going to take a slightly different approach today to take a look at a society of the future that some would seem to think, look from the outside, looks like a utopia with lots of happy, contented people. But really, from the inside, looks more like an Orwellian nightmare than even Orwell could have dreamt. So in order to start looking at today's 
topic, we're going to take a cue from a very unlikely source, an article that came out earlier this year from Cracked.com, entitled, Five Creepy Ways Video Games Are Trying to Get You Addicted. Reading from number five in that list, putting you in a Skinner box, quote, If you've ever been addicted to a game or known someone who was, this article, and there's a link there, is really freaking disturbing. It's written by a games researcher at Microsoft on how to make video games that hook players, whether they like it or not. He has a doctorate in behavioral and brain sciences. Quote, Each contingency is an arrangement of time, activity, and reward, and there are an infinite number of ways these elements can be combined to produce the pattern of activity you want from your players. Notice his article does not contain the words fun or enjoyment. That's not his field. Instead, it's the pattern of activity you want. His theories are based around the work of B.F. Skinner, who discovered you could control behavior by training subjects with simple stimulus and reward. He invented the Skinner box, a cage containing a small animal that, for instance, presses a lever to get food pellets. Now, I'm not saying this guy at Microsoft sees gamers as a bunch of rats in a Skinner box. I'm just saying that he illustrates his theory of game design using pictures of rats in a Skinner box. That sort of thing caused games researcher Nick Yee to once call EverQuest a virtual Skinner box. So what's the problem? Well, gaming has changed. It used to be that once they sold us a $50 game, they didn't particularly care how long we played. The big thing was making sure we liked it enough to buy the next one. But the industry is moving towards subscription-based games like MMOs that need the subject to keep playing and paying until the sun goes supernova. Now, there's no way they can create enough exploration or story to keep your, you playing for thousands of hours, so they had to change the mechanics of the game so players would instead keep doing the same actions over and over and over, whether they liked it or not. So game developers turned to Skinner's techniques. This is a big source of controversy in the world of game design right now. Braid creator Jonathan Blow said Skinnerian game mechanics are a form of exploitation. It's not that these games can't be fun, but they're designed to keep gamers subscribing during the periods when it's not fun, locking them into a repetitive slog using Skinner's manipulative system of carefully scheduled rewards. Why would this work when the rewards are just digital objects that don't actually exist, end quote. Now, that's a very good question that that article then goes on to answer in great detail. Surprisingly enough, for a Cracked.com article, it is quite thought-provoking, and ultimately it turns out that, in fact, people can't differentiate between a cyber object that has absolutely no reality and a real object. As long as they actually put work into it, obtaining that object, it has the same psychological value for any human being. And again, this is not a question of being smarter than anyone else or being able to understand that it's only a game. Your brain processes that cyber object in the exact same way that it would process any actual object that you've worked for. So all they have to do is get you invested in the game and get you working through all the little tasks and pushing the levers in the right way, and you will accept the little rewards that come down even if they have no physical reality or no significance in the real world. You will still invest that cyber object with actual value. Now, I'm assuming that you're probably seeing where this is going and that this has a lot more to do with psychological manipulation of people on a mass scale than it has anything to do with video games in and of themselves. But let's step back for a moment and explore one of the things that was brought up in that article, that, that is the Skinner Box by B.F. Skinner. This is an extremely important thing to understand because it was one of the turning points of behavioral science or that branch of psychology which really first started to come about with Ivan Pavlov's really early look at the possibility of conditioning an animal to respond in a certain way to a certain stimulus. But that was then developed much more broadly by scientists like Watson and Skinner. So let's find out a little bit more about Skinner and the Skinner box. 
While some scientists engineer shiny new consumer goods for an eager public, Harvard psychologist B.F. Skinner seeks nothing less than the engineering of human nature. In experiments with subjects as simple as pigeons, Skinner declares that with the right social engineering, we can create a new breed of human being. Skinner is firmly in the behaviorist tradition pioneered by John Watson in the 1920s. Like Watson, Skinner contends that with the right tools, we can predict and control behavior. Skinner really inherited the, the mantle from Watson of behaviorism in this country. But it's kind of interesting to think about how there's a subtle difference uh, in the way they went about it. Watson, as we know, ended up becoming an advertising executive, ended up embracing the American value system as it existed. Skinner was different. Skinner was a visionary. Skinner felt that through behaviorism, he could influence the world towards a greater humanity not meet humanity where it was, but take humanity to a new place through the principles of behaviorism. Picking up where Watson left off, Skinner wants to do the rigorous science to prove that environment is everything. Change the environment, he argues, and you can change the individual. Or in Skinner's case, the pigeon. Skinner himself was a born gadgeteer. Uh, he had, in his own early years, as a boy, for example, he developed ways of sorting ripe, I think it was cranberries, from unripe cranberries. He invented a cannon that would shoot things over his neighbor's fence. This was the kind of man he was. He was developing new ways to do everyday things in ways that were more comfortable, more efficient. During World War II, Skinner had developed a pigeon guidance device for the U.S. military. While the Russians had dogs carrying bombs, and the Swedes had seals to blow up mines, Skinner had a plan of his own. Teaching pigeons to guide missiles to an enemy target. At the time, however, the military had no missiles to guide. But Skinner's pigeon research did not go to waste. He develops a system called operant conditioning to prove that a behavior will be repeated by a subject when rewarded. Repetition leads to reinforcement. Reinforcement to changes in behavior. This hungry pigeon is moving about more or less at random. Sometimes it turns its head to the left. When it does, we reinforce that movement by giving the pigeon access to a dish of grain. Skinner then waits for it to turn further. Again, more food. Ultimately, the pigeon will turn in a complete circle, having learned that only when he turns will he be rewarded. What Skinner was able to do in very carefully controlled studies with animal models was they demonstrate that whole chains of behaviors could be built step by step so that literally you could teach a pigeon to do complicated behaviors that no one would have predicted possible. And Skinner believes that if it works for pigeons, why not people? In Skinner's mind, behavior is behavior up and down the evolutionary scale, and it is all learned. One of the great successes is in education. People are taught to do more complicated tasks than anyone had thought possible by breaking down behavior into small steps and giving positive reinforcement along the way. The essence of Skinner's work was that we could manipulate the environment in ways that would permit us to produce any kind of behavior that we wished and we could develop individuals in ways that made every possible future um, open to them. So you can go and watch various videos of Skinner box type experiments online and I suggest that you do so that you can see how, for example, a very hungry pigeon can be eventually conditioned to 
turn in a complete counterclockwise circle every time in order to receive a food pellet. A quite basic conditioning that really stems from the earlier works of people like Ivan Pavlov, who of course did the famous conditioning tests on dogs to make them drool whenever a bell was rung, and other such, well, really minuscule steps towards the type of conditioning that we're looking at today, but very important and momentous steps, no doubt, and that's why people like that win, win things like Nobel Prizes. So clearly this field of behaviorism in psychology was extremely important, not only because it told us uh, something about the way the mind worked, but that it actually showed researchers how they could change a person's behavior by simply changing their environment or changing the way that they're they were able to stimulate and interact with that environment, an extremely important breakthrough that it wasn't long before people were beginning to engineer for their own purposes. And one very easy way in which we can see people implementing that in the world around us is through the uh, subject of video games. And we can go to that article that was mentioned earlier in that Crack.com article, the disturbing article from the Microsoft Games researcher, in which uh, he recaps his article at the very end by coming up with some recipes for how to make players play hard or how to make players play forever, for example. So let's read through some of those recipes and, and take a look at some of the operant conditioning or s virtual Skinner boxes that are being employed in the very simple task of keeping people actively engaged with repetitive and some would say mind-numbingly boring video games. Quote, to help drive home the ideas I've discussed, here are some simple formulas of what contingencies to use to achieve specific results. These are not the only ways to solve these problems, but they are simple, reliable, and very effective. How to make players play hard. Translated into the language we've been using, how do we make players maintain a high, consistent rate of activity? Looking at our four basic schedules, the answer is a variable ratio schedule, one where each response has a chance of producing a reward. Activity level is a function of how soon the participant expects a reward to occur. The more certain they are that something good or interesting will happen soon, the harder they'll play. When the player knows the reward is a long way off, such as when the player has just leveled and needs thousands of points before they can do it again, motivation is low, and so is player activity. How to make players play forever? The short answer is to make sure that there is always, always a reason for the player to be playing. The variable schedules I discussed produce a constant probability of reward, and thus the player always has a reason to do the next thing. What a game designer also wants from players is a lot of behavioral momentum, a tendency to keep doing what they're doing, even during the point parts where there isn't an immediate reward. One schedule that produces a lot of momentum is the avoidance schedule, where the players work to prevent bad things from happening. Even when there's nothing going on, the player can achieve something positive by postponing a negative con consequence. How to make players quit. In other words, under what circumstances do players stop playing, and how can you avoid them? I've discussed two main conditions under which players will stop playing. The first is pausing, where their motivation to do the next thing is low. Motivation is relative. The desire to play your, play your game is always being measured against other activities. While they may have a high overall motivation to play your game, during play, they're comparing their motivation to do the very next thing in the game to all the other next things they could be doing. If they've just gone up a level and know that they have an hour of play before anything interesting happens, their motivation will be low relative to all the other activities they could be doing. One way around this problem is to have multiple activities possible at any given time. This means that even if killing monsters becomes unrewarding, there are often activities within the game that can take up the slack. If monsters are unprofitable, exploration may be better. The player could take some time to improve their equipment or to practice a new tactic. Note that this is the, the same phenomenon that led to quitting before, a drop in motivation in the main activity, raising the motiva motivation of lesser activities. In this case, the lesser activities are also part of the game, redirecting their attention within the game and maintaining a high level of play. End quote. Well, are you getting the sense that these are the types of tactics and techniques that could be employed in other ways than simply getting people obsessed with computer games or video games? 
Because if you are, then you're starting to get a handle on what may be involved in this type of mass scale operant conditioning techniques. But trust me, unless you've really thought this out, you really can't even begin to imagine how this is going to affect your everyday life very soon. But for a very, very powerful and very effective way of getting the point across about how important these types of things are, let's turn to a very, very interesting presentation that was given at something called DICE 2010, a type of video game summit where one of the guest speakers was Jesse Schell of Carnegie Mellon University and an instructor of entertainment technology, whatever that means. And he gave a very interesting presentation, to say the least, under what I think is a very appropriate title from YouTube user Funkheads345, Most Disturbing Presentation Ever, Our Tech Nightmare. Well, let's take a listen to Jesse Schell on the future of gaming. Okay, anyway... So, beyond technology, there's all these other ways that games are creeping into places we didn't think about. Fantasy football's been around forever. It used to be a nerdly game for nerdly nerds. Now everyone plays it. Your grandmother probably plays fantasy football. Like, everybody is playing it. It's just, it's just everywhere. It's a game uh, that leeches off a game. Geocaching. Because it's cooler to go for a walk in the woods when there's a treasure chest at the end. The Simpsons had their 20th anniversary, and Fox said, we're going to do a scavenger hunt. In each of the shows we have this week, we're going to hide a Simpsons reference in every show. Watch all the shows, find the references, and we'll give you a prize. Watching television became a game. DARPA wanted to figure out what are people able to figure out through crowdsourcing, so they made a, they made a game. They, they put these red balloons all over the country and said, let's see who can find them first. And everybody raced to find the red balloons and did DARPA's research for them. Weight Watchers, they have this whole point system, which is very much like a game. And if anybody has uh, the new Ford hybrid car, um, okay, I got it. It's got a speedometer, and then it's got a gas gauge. And what are those leaves? What the hell is that? The more gas you save, the more the plant grows. <laughs> they put a virtual pet in your car, and it changes the way people drive. Games have crept out and they're going everywhere. Right? Oh, and so, but now here's a question I'm going to put to you. Who do you think is designing these games? Skilled game designers? No, not really. Just like whoever's there is doing it. Imagine if skilled game designers get a hold of these kinds of things. Lee Sheldon is a great example. He's teaching, he's a game designer, some of you I'm sure know. He's teaching at University of Indiana now. And one of the first things he did was, you know what, this grading system kind of sucks. Because school's a game, right? You, you go, you get scores, you take, you know, and, and you come out, there's a leaderboard, you know. And he said, I'm going to do this better. He doesn't give out grades for each assignment, he gives out experience points. And you level up through the class. And, and, and so class attendance is up, class participation is up. Homework uh, is, is turned in often and better because it's a better structure. It's a better system. Imagine when the game designers get a hold of all this garbage. The gas points and the shopping points and your coffee points and your airline points. All these points and points and points. Imagine when they're all designed and, and, then, and when they can be sensed um, and, and these things start to come together a little bit. Because sensors are what's happening now. That's what's changing things. Natal is going to come out. And it's got cameras. It's going to sense every joint of your body. The DSi is out, and it's got cameras, and no one knows what they're for, but someone's going to figure it out. <laughs> and, and technology keeps getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, and there's going to be sensors everywhere detecting so many things in your life. And these things are going to be able to be used for, for gameplay. So um, we're moving on a road towards disposable technology. If anyone here ever bought a Furby, right, the Furby costs like $20, $30. It has more technology in it than they used to put a man on the moon. And many people have now thrown out their Furbies because it's like it's kind of dumb and they throw it out. It's disposable technology. We're, before too long, going to get to the point where every soda can, every cereal box is going to be able to have a CPU, a screen, and a camera on board it and a Wi-Fi connector so that it can be connected to the Internet. <laughs> 
And what will that world be like? Well, I think it'll be like this. You'll get up in the morning to brush your teeth. And the toothbrush can sense that you're brushing your teeth. And so, hey, good job for you. Ten points for brushing your teeth. And it can measure how long, and you're supposed to brush them for three minutes, and you did. Uh, good job, you brushed your teeth for three minutes. And so you get a bonus for that. And hey, you brushed your teeth every day this week, another bonus. And, right, and who cares? The toothpaste company, the toothbrush company, the more you brush, the more toothpaste you use, they have a vested financial interest. You go to breakfast, there's the cornflakes. On the back, there's a little uh, web game that you can play. While you eat, instead of reading the back, you play a game while you eat your cornflakes. And uh, you, you get that, and you get 10 points just for eating the cornflakes. And then it turns out you can see your list of friends who also have cornflakes and the scores that they got because your Wi-Fi and, and Facebook connected and everything. And so you, know, you get five bonus points because you just beat out uh, one of your friends at the cornflakes game. So then you go and you get on the bus. The bus? Why am I taking the bus? You're taking the bus because the government has started giving out all kinds of bonus points to people who use public transportation. And you can use these points um, for, for tax incentives. And while you're sitting on the bus riding to work and you're playing your little Tetris and getting a few points here and there, you suddenly remember, I had this dream last night. I had a dream that my mother was dancing with this giant Pepsi can. And then you realize, oh yeah, the Remtertainment system. Right, which is the thing you put in your ear and it can sense when you enter REM sleep and then it starts putting little advertisements out there to try and influence your dreams. And then you can fill out a little form. It's a test to see if those things came through into your dreams. And if they did, then um, big points for you. Right? And you can use these points at the grocery store or whatever. And you get to work on time. Good job. Excellent. You got to work on time. And uh, you, you get a, a special bonus. Um, I don't know, for something else. Maybe because you've been there on time all week. And then there's your office mate. And he's like, check out, I got the new digital tattoo. Right? It's a tattoo that you can change the image because it's got like e-ink in it in your arm. Right? So you can change the image all the time to whatever you want. But a lot of people are using Tattoogal AdSense. Right? And so he's got the ads up. And you're thinking, you're really dumb because Tattoogal AdSense has light sensors in it. And uh, so that when your arm is covered, uh, you're not going to get any money from people seeing the ads. And you show them how yours is lower on the arm, so it's more exposed, so you get more points for it. And just then, you realize that the two of you have your ads suddenly synchronized just by chance. And so, you know, you say, link sync, and you get 30 points for noticing a link sync that the two of us had that. And he says, Pop-Tarts, because they're both Pop-Tart ads, and the system is listening, and it can tell that we said Pop-Tarts. And then we do high five, because the body electricity sensors can tell when you do a high five. And that's the rule. That's how the game works, um, that when the ads line up, because it, it makes you pay more attention to the ads, because that's how these games will work. The games will be tricking you to pay more attention to ads. So then you go to lunch, and you've had Dr. Peppers all week, and so you know you've got to have another Dr. Pepper because you've got 10 points, 10 points, 10 points, 10 points. And then you have another one. And there's another one. But you know there's a special with Dr. Pepper this week. If you have five Dr. Peppers in a week, 500 bonus points. So you're definitely going to take advantage of that. And then you've got a meeting at another building. It's a half a mile away. And you could, you could uh, take the shuttle over. But you decide, I'm going to walk because the health insurance plan that you're on gives you bonus points if you walk like more than a mile each day. And we can sense that easily um, you know, through, through, your, through your digital shoes. And if you get your heart rate up about a certain, a certain amount, then you get uh, more bonus points from your health insurance company. So then you're going shopping on the way home. And man, this is like a place you can get a lot of points, and it's really complicated, so you don't figure it out. You let your, like, your app figure it out. It like, looks at all the point systems you have. It looks at what you want, and then it tells you which ones to buy in order to get, ooh, wow, a lot of points just because I make good choices shopping. And then you get home and your daughter's like, oh, I got my report card. And you're like, oh, good job. You're getting 2,000 points from the state for getting such good grades. And you're getting 5,000 as a parent uh, from the Obama bonus for the good parenting bonus, which you're excited because you can use that as tax relief. And then you say, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. Did you practice your piano? And she's like, yeah, I practiced my piano. Well, what score did you get? You're like, oh, well, I got 150,000. 150,000, that's the best you've ever had on that particular sonata. That's 9,000 points given by the Arts Council for your scholarship uh, fund. So, you know, go, go you, right? And then you go and watch television, 
And like, I don't even want to talk about this. It's just points, 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 points. Because there's eye sensors, right, that can tell when you're watching the ads. So you want to watch the ads, certain ads especially, because you're going to get points for them. And your remote has a little screen on it and with a little camera. So you can kind of be live chat with other people you know are watching the show. And you play all these games and you get all these points while you watch television. That would be a very natural um, thing to do. Then finally, oh, the day is over. You're going to bed. You sit down with your new Kindle 3.0, which, of course, has the eye-tracking sensor in it that can tell what you've read um, and how much you've read uh, of the book. And it's important to read the whole book because uh, then if you leave a review on Amazon, you'll get super bonus points if it knows you read the whole book through. And as you finish the book, you're very surprised. Oh, did I mention that Microsoft acquired Amazon a couple of years back? But they did. And you get an achievement unlocked. This thing's been tracking you for 20 years. You've finished 500 novels. And this is like a big achievement. And you're thinking, I'm really embarrassed that my 500th novel was this dumb Star Trek novel that I'm reading. Because like, I'm going to remember that forever. And then you start thinking about all these achievements and points and things and realizing that you, know, you have no idea what books your grandparents read or where they went on their daily basis. But these sensors that we're going to have on us and all around us and everywhere are going to be tracking and watching what we're doing forever. And our grandchildren will know every book that we read. That legacy will be there, will be remembered. And you get to thinking about how, wow, is it possible maybe that since all this stuff is being watched and measured and judged, that maybe I should change my behavior a little bit and be a little better than I would have been? And so it could be that these systems are just all crass commercialization and it's terrible, but it's possible that they'll inspire us to be better people if the game systems are designed right. Anyway, I'm not sure about all that, but I do know this stuff is coming. Man, it's got to come. What's going to stop it? They'll inspire us to be better people. Yes, because of course, once we're subjected to the 24-7 virtual panopticon where every action of every day is being logged and monitored on numerous electronic devices across numerous databases that will be seen not only by governments, but by basically anyone with an interest in getting into them, especially advertisers and corporations and Big Brother will be everyone you know looking at your digital footprints all throughout your life so that everything you do is recorded for posterity, then we'll all be acting in just such a wonderful way because we'll know that we're always being watched. Isn't it great? Well, anyone who's listened to my episode on the Panopticon will know what an absolute nightmare society that really is and how it really has been for centuries, the psychopath's ultimate metaphor for total control, the total surveillance society. And uh, people don't need to really be told how that only serves to benefit those who are in positions of power, those who are in positions behind the technology, which is constantly observing and monitoring you, exactly as the people who are designing the games will ultimately have control over designing and shaping your behavior into whatever way they think is best and most beneficial for society. And if it happens to be a large corporation, then yes, perhaps it will be trying to focus your attention on the link sync in your e-tattoos or trying to get your attention on the commercials of television broadcasts as long as possible or things of that nature. But what if it's a government that wants to manipulate its citizens into acting in a certain way? Can anyone truly comprehend what a cybernetic 21st century Nazi regime would have looked like? And would anyone actually want to? Certainly, I'm sure my listeners don't need to be told what's at stake when we start consigning ourselves to an electronic prison like this, where everything we do is tracked, engineered, and monitored, and then put back into the system in a cybernetic feedback loop in order to slowly but surely manipulate and streamline our behaviors so that they match whatever behavior the game designers want us to reach. And for anyone who thinks that this couldn't take place, I guess they really haven't been living in the 21st century and haven't seen such phenomenon as Facebook and the little games that you can play on there and the way that people are now spending more time on Facebook than on any other website on the net. And there are hundreds of millions of people signed up. And as the researcher there, uh, Jesse Schell, points out, 
Facebook is only the beginning. As soon as companies start really tapping into this, it will soon be everywhere in our society. The question is, do we want that and is it a good thing? And the answer is most certainly not unless you are part of the psychopathic power elite that generally benefits from shaping society and the behaviors of people in that society to your wishes. Someone who had the foresight to understand this well before any of this came to light, well before even the PC phenomenon had really played itself out, was a man by the name of Neil Postman, an American cultural critic who died in 2003, but before he died left behind him such invaluable works as Amusing Ourselves to Death, Informing Ourselves to Death, and Technopoly, where he takes on the what he saw as the growing, not Orwellian, but... Huxleyan vision of a nightmare society in which people can literally amuse themselves to death. A society in which people are controlled by their pleasures rather than controlled by some oppressive big brother type technological dictatorship. In the end, it amounts to the same thing, but from a very different perspective, and ultimately it might be harder to fight the Huxleyan nightmare than the Orwellian nightmare, which everyone can identify and understand as a tyrannical and despotic society. While Neil Postman was quite a profound thinker and well ahead of his time on these issues, so from the freedom perspective, let's take a listen to a lecture from Neil Postman in which he talks about technology and the fight against technology controlling every aspect of our lives. Of course, it sometimes very difficult to know what new problems will arise as a result of a technological solution. Benedictine monks invented the mechanical clock in the 13th century in order to be more precise in performing their canonical prayers, which they needed to do seven times a day. Had they known that the mechanical clock would eventually be used by merchants as a means of establishing a standardized workday and then a standardized product. That is that the clock would be used as an instrument for making money instead of serving God. The monks might have decided that their sundials were quite sufficient. Had Gutenberg foreseen that his printing press with movable type would lead to the breakup of the Holy Roman See, he surely would have used his old wine press to make wine and not books. In the 13th century, perhaps it didn't matter so much if people lacked a technological vision, perhaps not, not even in the 15th century. But in a technological society, such as ours, we can no longer afford to move into the future with our eyes tightly closed. We need to speculate in an open-eyed way about negative possibilities. But as I've said, it's no easy matter to know what sorts of problems a new technology will generate. To produce interesting and responsible answers uh, requires knowledge of the history of technology and of technology's social effects and of the principles governing technological change, all of which <clears throat> I'm sorry to say most Americans know little about. In fact, uh, the average college-educated American cannot tell you given a thousand-year margin of error when the phonetic alphabet was invented, or given a 500-year margin of error when the printing press with movable type was invented, let alone say anything intelligible about the social and psychic effects of these inventions. Well, we'll probably need to do something about that in the years ahead. But it's not sufficient to reflect in a general way on the possible costs of technology. In order to give some focus 
to our reflections, we have to pose a fourth question. It's this. Which people and what institutions might be most seriously harmed by a technological solution? Now, this was the question, by the way, that gave rise to the Luddite movement in England during the years 1811 to 1818. The people we call Luddites were skilled manual workers in the garment industry at the time when mechanization was taking command and the factory system was being put into place. They knew perfectly well what advantages mechanism would bring to most people. But they also saw with equal clarity how it would bring ruin to their own ways of life, especially to their children who were being employed as virtual slave laborers in factories. They resisted technological change by the simplistic and in the end useless expedient of smashing to bits industrial machinery, which they continued to do until they were imprisoned or killed by the British Army. Now, no one knows where the word Luddite came from, but the word has come to mean a person who resists technological change in any way, and it's usually used as an insult. Now, why this is so is a bit puzzling to me, since only a fool doesn't know that new technologies always produce winners and losers. And there is nothing irrational about loser resistance. Let's make no mistake, technology is neither inherently evil nor inherently bad, and without modern communications technology, I would not be sitting here in the comfort of my apartment in western Japan, talking to you wherever you are, whatever you're doing right now. Nor are we going to be enslaved by technology itself. It is only the humans who are commandeering that technology for a specific purpose and implementing it in a specific way that will ever be able to achieve that. So we do not have to be in a perpetual state of fear over every new electronic advance, or feel that every new breakthrough is going to lead us one step closer to an inevitable electronic control grid. On the contrary, technology very much can be used in the liberation of humankind, as is evidenced by the flowering of human understanding and imagination that is going on right now, thanks to the modern communication system known as the Internet. But it is only when we come together as a society and as a group of people and decide that we want to use this technology for unlocking the human mind that we can ever begin to steer this technological advancement towards what we want rather than what the social controllers want. We have to understand why we are implementing new technologies, what purpose it serves, what question it solves, what new function it serves in our goal of liberating humankind. We are not helpless victims or passive spectators in any of this, and only by taking agency over what we do, what we buy, what we create, and what we use, can we ever hope to achieve the society that we're looking for. I would, of course, as always, encourage people to begin exploring and doing their own homework from here, including, of course, reading the works of Neil Postman and exploring further into that lecture, which we only had a time to listen to a short clip from today. And if I may be so bold, I think it might also be in your best interest to begin looking into that Crack.com article that I cited earlier in today's episode, and using that as a springboard for looking more into the virtual Skinner boxes that are being created, and which are about to be implemented on a mass scale, not just in the video game universe. Once again, our fate rests in our hands, and your fate rests in your hands. The question is, are you being gamed? And will you allow yourself to be gamed? That's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me this week and asking you to join me next week for episode 146 of The Corbett Report, Lessons in Resistance, Building Communities. <laughs>